East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Amy Winehouse's funeral was held today in London. The soulful songstress was found dead in her London home on Saturday. While an autopsy was performed yesterday, it will take two to four weeks for a toxology test to provide a cause of death. Winehouse is a singer of the hit song Rehab. She was 27 years old. She now joins the so-called 27 Club. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and a slew of other artists also died at that age, many from conditions related to drug or alcohol use. And in national news, McDonald's said today that it will soon tweak its Happy Meals, according to Reuters. The company plans to reduce the French fry portion by more than half and automatically add apples to the popular children's meals after coming under pressure from consumer groups to provide healthier fare. The company will make changes in September. And in Michigan news, bookstore change Bookstore chain Books a Million says its last-minute talks to buy the leases and assets of 30 Borders bookstores have fallen through, according to the Associated Press. Borders Group, which filed for bankruptcy protection in February, received court approval last week to liquidate its 399 stores. And we'll hear more about the future of bookstores this hour with owner of East Lansing's independent bookstore, Curious Bookshop. Also this hour, you'll hear about the threat of Asian carp to the Great Lakes and the future of ethanol and green energy in the state. But in the studio's Gifts are Creatures, they are a Lansing-based band here, and they'll be performing this Saturday from 7 to 9 p.m. in downtown East Lansing. And they're in the studio to chat with us and perform as well. Welcome to the show. So first off, can you just introduce yourselves and, and tell us um, how your band um, formed and how long you guys have been around for? Um, okay, I, I'll start. Um, I'm Bethany. I'm Bethany Foote, and this is my husband, Brandon. And we have been playing, I guess, close to two years. Um, we got married about two years ago in August, and we started making music then, um, and put together our first album, which came out last September, so it's kind of a newer project. Um, Brandon's been doing music for a long time, but it's a newer adventure for me, and I'm kind of just getting the hang of it, but it's been fun. So So did you guys um, play music together before you were married, or is this an after-the-fact kind of deal? This is a more, more than, more, I guess, more than less an after-the-fact type deal. Um, we played out of this great book a little bit in Bethany's parents' basement called The Waltz Book, which is all these classic waltzes. She played her the piano she played growing up on, and we, a few times when we were over there we played, but that was about it. So hmm. um, Gifts for Creatures, the, kind of taking my songs and um, letting Bethany add kind of her element to them has been new and pretty, pretty um, enjoyable so far. So. And what do you think, what is that dynamic like to, to be married and, and, and making music together? Because I feel like I would have, if, if I was married to someone or had a significant other that I'd play with, sometimes I feel like I would get frustrated because you know this person so well, and then you're making music. And I guess, what is that dynamic like, being married and being in a band together? Um, I guess, I mean, it's an interesting thing, I guess. It it seems to work work well in, in that our hobby, this is our hobby, this is our... Um, kind of a love and um it's always been a part of my life in the form of playing piano and um not so much the I guess the band and performance element so that's kind of taken a a little bit of a growth on my part to be comfortable with that but for us to do it together it kind of just makes sense I mean we come home from work we both work uh day jobs and and kind of do our own thing and to come home and have that to do and to practice and we also get to play with some great other people um as well and that kind of helps just give that extra flavor I think to our music so I mean when was the point that you guys were like you know, let's let's be in a band together. And and what inspires you when you are, um, you know, jamming or, or or coming up with with new songs? I think it's been really just an organic kind of um, happening. I mean, I I write a lot of music I have for years, and I've gotten more and more into writing my own music. I've played a lot of traditional music over the years. Um, I played mandolin quite avidly for a handful of years, and um, being a songwriter um, is just it, it kind of 
kind of keeps growing on me the idea of writing songs and uh, learning. I, I've learned a lot about myself in the process. You write write songs and write songs, and some of them are excellent, and some of them need a little work. And the more you write, the better you get. But through all those songs, I usually like to write a lot about um, the kind of local, uh, regional history and whatnot. So I think I've learned a lot about myself, and it's just been a process, like just something I need to do. And Bethany's been really supportive. So I think having her as a backbone has helped kind of push things to the forefront and um, getting this, getting these tunes out there. And um, yeah, having a having a, a sidekick that's really behind me has been really special. So. So Gifts or Creatures um, is involved with Earthwork Music Collective, and I understand that Earthwork does a lot of activism with, mm -hmm. with its musicians associated with this collective. Can you talk about um, the activism pro projects that you guys may have been involved with? Yeah. Um, I mean, we feel that um, the Great Lakes are just such a fertile resource um, for, for natural resources, and, uh, you know, water awareness has been a huge one. We've been advocates for water uh water advocacy and working with um, a bunch of different environmental groups. One in particular is the sulfide mine that's been happening, uh, that's actually been put into place, but th we put up a pretty big stink about it, just trying to make sure that it's uh, it's known that sulfide mining is, is detrimental to the environment and to people's quality of life. Um, we've also been a part of water festivals that have been happening throughout the state for the past handful of years. Um, the Grand Rapids Water Festival happened just this um, June, which we are a part of. There's been water festivals in Traverse City. There's been water festivals in Kalamazoo. Um, hopefully those, there's been a water festival in Marquette as well. There hopefully will be one in Detroit in the years to come. And just, just creating awareness, we work with a great organization out of northern Michigan, out of Traverse City, called SEEDS. And they do a bunch of after-school programming, and a lot of it is tied in with env environmental advocacy. So when you say water festivals, is that like a music festival with a focus on trying to raise awareness about water? Yeah, precisely. They're free festivals. Um, it's donation-based. Um, you come and you see a lot of great music. A lot of the earthwork artists are involved, but there's also other artists. We, um, and through that, um, there's actually speakers between each act that talk about different um, ways that people can get involved. Uh, and just really knowing... Um, the basics of water, the water you're drinking, where it's coming from, uh, the water cycle. It's, uh, things as simple as that, there's people that don't know. Um, knowing that bottled water isn't always the best option, there's other options out there, um, are all important. You know, that's just one step of the way, but it's all very, very important and dear to our, near to our hearts. So. so without further ado, would you be willing to play a song for us? Sure, absolutely. And, uh, this is a new tune. Uh, we have um, just guitar and pump organ, an old pump organ here tonight, and... Um, this is a tune kind of about the, uh, the good and bad of um, Thomas Edison, the good things and bad things he brought into this world. So It's called Telegraph Tramp. One, two, three. Plank rose leaf through my foggy tenure
femme sans le graphe. Baggage car up since you. deceptive cadence at the end <laughs> um, in the studio as gifts or creatures they are a Lansing based band and they'll be performing this Saturday from 7 to 9pm in downtown East Lansing so I understand that sometimes when you are trying to find inspiration for music sometimes you'll go to the library and check out historical books was this one of those songs that you that you went to the library for inspiration Brandon did yeah, yeah. yeah. he did a lot of reading there's a batch of tunes. Um, there's actually three or there's three and a half in the works that are actually all about Edison and kind of his Michigan and East Coast ties. And um, I'm not sure if they'll all be recorded and presented to the world, but they're in the works. So maybe we'll make a whole whole album just about Edison. So I don't know. And I notice a lot of Michigan ends up in your lyrics. Yeah. I mean, um, is that a conscious effort? Do you think that that your your mission is is to sing songs about about the state, or or is it? It's just a part of who you are. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's an outright mission, but we both love Michigan. I'm, I think it influences a lot of choices that we make, and um, I think we've grown to be that. I mean, be that as a couple and just individually. Um, we spent our early years here. I actually was born in England and moved here when I was five and a half, but have family roots here. So a lot of our upbringing was um, in the state, and we both definitely have gone different places and come back. And I think we see a beauty in the state and just the community that we're a part of, we're really thankful for. So I think it influences a lot of what mm -hmm. we... Yeah, absolutely. Would, it's. Would write I think yeah, we have friends in Detroit. We have friends in Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids, Traverse City, Marquette. Um, the key went all. We, we have friends everywhere in Michigan. We can go sleep on a couch anywhere. And um, I think I've really grown to l feel really lucky that we have that. And look, thinking about leaving is is not really in the cards right now. And you know, it's um, we both really like our jobs. I work at Elderly Instruments in Lansing, and I've been there a long time. And um, yeah, we just feel really blessed to have the community we do. We know it's not something everybody finds every day, so we try to embrace that. And, Kind of, uh, yeah. You know, we want people to we want people to know about Michigan, but we also want to make sure that um, people that learn about it know that it's a special place, and people that come here respect it for what it is. Because a lot of the people on on the coast don't even know where Michigan is, you know. So wow, that's pretty. Yeah. I mean, at least I talk to a lot of people. That, I talk on the phone a lot during the day at work, and there's a lot of people that are, aren't have never been through Michigan at all because it is kind of out of the way. It's a it's a peninsula. It's you don't travel, through, you know, even the heartland of America, you drive through Ohio, Indiana, et cetera. But Michigan's just it's off the radar a little. So I think there's there's an importance for educating the, uh, those folks out there that are kind of un, unschooled with the likes of our mitten state. So Yeah, and and can you talk a little bit about, um, I know we've, we've talked before, Brandon, um, about, um, and, and Bethany as well, about kind of the music scene in Michigan. And, and before, Brandon, you've told me, um, that, you know, because we're a peninsula, like you said, you know, people don't drive through it. Um, but because we're a peninsula, do you think that that reflects um, a different type of music scene that you may get in different states, where maybe in different states you get more touring bands, where mm -hmm. in Michigan, maybe those, you know, the bands that we have here stay here? I do. I really do. I think there's a, um, there's a community sense here that people almost feel like they need each other a little bit more. Um, and, uh, yeah, we have friends that we have friends that live out in Woodstock, New York, that are great musicians that tour the tour the world, and they've come to Michigan for our harvest gathering that we're a part of at the Earthwork Farm in the fall. And uh, I think they've just been blown away by the people here and this, their their love for music and just their genuine uh, support that they that they pour out. So. And can you talk a little bit about Harvest Gathering? I know that's coming mm -hmm. up in September. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's actually um, Seth Bernard, Seth and May, um, May uh, Bernard now, I believe. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if she took his name or not. They just were married last week, Seth and May Early Wine. Um, Seth Bernard and May Early Wine. So it's at their farm. They live on a farm that's the Bernard family farm where Seth's father lives. And it's a pretty decent chunk of land, and they have a home there as well as um, Bob Bernard. And they have a festival that's... Um, it's a beautiful thing. It's about 2,000 people. Um, they kind of eat community meals together. And um, there's three stages of music that starts at 10 in the morning and usually goes till the wee hours of the night. 
and it's a it's an amazing amazing weekend it's my favorite weekend of the year generally so so talk about how you used Kickstarter for your first album that came out this fall. Mm -hmm. um, how did you utilize that website? Um, it was really new to us. We did it. Uh, we did it a year ago in I think June, mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of before the onslaught. A lot of people have done it since then, and it seems to be proven quite successful. Um, just rallying your community um, behind what your project and essentially allows you to pre-sell albums and. and offer other incentives to raise funds instead of going into debt to put out an album people in your your fan base or your community base will be like hey i'll i'll donate you 25 dollars right now if you're going to send me an album when it's done um and that definitely limits the overhead of uh you know putting things on credit cards which a lot of musicians do and a lot of musicians live paycheck to paycheck or gig to gig it's it's not the easiest uh it's definitely a labor of love, I guess that's the way to think about it. So We had fun with the Kickstarter. We really did. Yeah. We, we had fun coming up with incentives. We did some cookies for a certain rate, and, and also we did we left to juice, and we have a juicer, so we did some juicing parties with some people who were higher bidders, and we, we just had a really good time with it. And the, the love and the support that we received um, through it was really, it was just mind-blowing. We were mm -hmm. really surprised and just... Um, I think there was a sense of ownership that our community was able to have. I know our family and some close friends really felt like they were able to help us kind of have that final push to just get the albums printed, and that's kind of where we were at, and it was really what enabled us to finish them in time for September. So we were really thankful for it. So where, where can people see you guys perform for the rest of the summer? Um, we'll, be at, we'll be at East Lansing this weekend, Saturday evening. And then in August, we'll be at a festival called the Grassfire Festival, which is up near, it's in Mesick, Michigan. And then we'll be actually in Boyne City at a place called Cooper's, um, which is a little, like, restaurant pub. Um, and then we'll be, um, through September, we'll be at Harvest Gathering, and that's the third weekend of September. We try to keep it to two to three gigs a month just to kind of keep our ground. We've done a little more than that, and sometimes with work stuck in the middle, it can be intensive, so... Well, without further ado, in the studio is Gifts or Creatures, their Lansing bass band, and they'll be performing this Saturday from 7 to 9 p.m. in downtown Lansing. And uh, before our next guest, we're going to take you out with a song of theirs that was released on their album in the fall, and this is called Mail from the Westcott. tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Last month, the Senate cut federal subsidies for ethanol. To talk about the future of ethanol and the bioeconomy is MSU engineering professor Bruce Dale. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So MSU does a lot of um, research into biofuels, and ethanol was the first and, and most prominent example of a biofuel. Um, what are some other biofuels that are now in the market or will soon be in the market that MSU may be working on? Well, there's uh, various types of biodiesel uh, that, are, that are being worked on here, and there's also ethanol from non-food materials, what we call cellulosic ethanol. Uh, so we're working, MSU is working on all aspects of those. And, and how much has ethanol affected uh, food production and prices over the years? Uh, there's some controversy about that, but I think the best estimates that it, it may be contributed 3 to 4% of the total global uh, grain price rise. Uh, the the bigger by far impact is energy prices because you need energy to to grow harvest and transport uh, the food crops you need energy ammonia particularly uh, uh, natural gas to grow it as the fertilizer it's it's the energy uh, costs really the big culprit there with food price rise and how much longer do you see ethanol sticking around it'll be in our food or sorry it'll be in our fuel mix for a long long time 
Yeah, because I understand it's, it's here to stay. Yeah, because I understand also that now there's a mandate to put 15% ethanol into um, you know gas fuel now. Well, there's a various types of mandates out there. Some of them are a little bit conflicting and, and, uh, and confusing. But uh, in 2022, the United States is supposed to uh, blend about 22 billion gallons uh, total of fuel uh, of so-called advanced biofuels, plus additional um, so-called traditional first-generation biofuels. So uh, those are the mandates. Uh, people are working to actually try to make it happen. And the U.S. Senate voted to end ethanol subsidies in June. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, they voted to end the direct subsidy for ethanol from corn. Uh, they did not vote to do that from ethanol from cellulosic materials. And the biodiesel tax exemption, I think, is still there. I didn't pay a lot of attention to that because it was so confusing how it's going back and forth. So in a compromise, uh, what they actually did is what a lot of us suggested happened a long time ago. They start using any public money to try to help uh, improve the infrastructure for using ethanol. So a, a compromise deal actually will, will put in more flex fuel uh, filling stations and, and other types of uh, infrastructure incentives to try to get more ethanol out to the consumers. So you were saying, um, you know, you're talking about ethanol as a corn base versus a cellulose right. base. Right. I thought ethanol meant it was made from corn. No, ethanol is just one of many fuels that you can make by fermentation of sugars uh, and or by other other processes. And so it, you can make it from the sugar that's in corn. You can make it from the sugar that's in sugar cane like the Brazilians do. Or you can do like uh, groups like myself and other people doing. You can take the structural sugars that are in plant material like straws and grasses and convert that sugar into ethanol or to other fuels. And I understand that when you see ethanol option um, at the ga gas station, that's E85, um, it, you know, you see it as a cheaper option um, to fuel your car. But I understand that in the long run, it actually lowers your fuel, your economy, fuel economy of your vehicle. Well, we've, we've had uh, 10 and 15 percent ethanol in the fuel blend for a long time. A lot of gas, in fact, almost most gas in the United States has at least 10 percent ethanol. At that blend level, the mileage difference isn't really noticeable. But the higher blends, like 85% ethanol, 15% gasoline, yes, you'll have a, a, a mileage penalty. So if the fuel is priced appropriately, then, you know, if you get, pay a little less, uh, go, go a little uh, less far. Uh, and so in, in Brazil, in fact, uh, the, you have a uh, – every car comes with a little calculator. And you can calculate whatever is gasoline today or ethanol is cheap or whatever blend. You just buy what's cheapest. And can any car run on ethanol, or is it only certain vehicles? Well, uh, there's what's called flex fuel vehicles that are capable of running on any blend up to 85% ethanol. We actually have about, oh, 9 or 10 million of those on the road. Most late model, many late model vehicles already are flex fuel, and the, the major uh, car companies have already committed to have half their production be flex fuel uh, in the next year or two. Uh, but all vehicles, essentially all vehicles of any age, can run on up to about 15% ethanol. And are there any policy issues that are getting in the way or uh, for promoting biofuels in the bioeconomy? Well, th there's some conflicting policies. Uh, we'd like to have really cheap food, and we'd like to have really cheap fuel, and we'd like it to be perfect environmentally. And, uh, and all those things uh, tend to conflict a little bit. And so we're working through this, a bit of a muddle in some ways, but it's uh, basically how we do things. We kind of muddle through. I see. And, and when do you think, do you think the U.S. will um, ever lose its dependence on foreign oil? I think we can. I think we have to, actually. And I think that that's well entrained. Uh, the price rises, this price keeps going up and the availability of uh, inexpensive oil keeps going down. We'll be forced to make that change anyway. The question is whether we can do it in a more or less organized fashion that won't be you know, really difficult transition for us as a country or whether we could do it in a little bit more sane and rational way. Because you shouldn't make any, uh, no, no one should make any mistake here. Uh, the days of cheap oil are over. They won't come back. We used up all that cheap oil a long time ago. Well, in the studio is MSU engineering professor Bruce Dale, and he was here to talk about ethanol and the bioeconomy. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. More Asian carp DNA has been discovered near Lake Michigan. To talk about the threat of the invasive fish is MSU Fisheries and Wildlife Professor Brian Roth. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So should we, we be worried about this DNA? Yes and no. Uh, it's a pretty complicated thing. Uh, in some ways, yes, because they found this environmental DNA several times over the past few months, and these most recent results that came out are actually from samples that came from May and June, and they found Asian carp DNA uh, in several different times over the past three years or so that are above the electric barrier that are supposed to keep Asian carp out of the Great Lakes. So we're talking about the electric barrier, and I know there's been talks about maybe stopping the locks um, by Chicago. What are some other things that could prevent Asian carp from getting in? That can prevent them? Prevent them, yes. Well, themselves, basically. Um, If there's no real reason for them to go into the Great Lakes, and basically they won't, but history has taught us that fish as well as other organisms are going to explore other areas even if things are good where they are. Um, In the Illinois River, which is pretty much ground zero for this invasion, there's a lot of Asian carp, a lot of them. Um, And that's where you see those videos of fish flying through the air coming from. And it's getting crowded, and their growth is going down in a lot of areas, and that means that they're probably thinking about expanding. Um, And when I mean thinking... It's not a complex thought. It's more instinctual. But at the same time, they're probably moving about. And how do these electric barriers work? Well, basically, fish don't like electricity, just like us. Um, and so the there's an electric barrier. Basically, it's electricity going through the water, um, and it increases in strength as you go upstream. So basically, the fish feel the shock and move away from it. It's, the, the shock is not so much as to paralyze them right away, but certainly it's supposed to be a deterrent from them moving upstream. And have Asian carp ever gotten into a body of water as large as Lake Michigan? In the United States, not necessarily. The Mississippi River, of course, is they're in there from Louisiana on up to Wisconsin, So in terms of actual size, yes, the Mississippi River is large enough. Um, But in other areas, generally, they're they're riverine species for the most part. So that's more or less where they tend to occupy. But really, the Great Lakes are unique around the world in terms of their size. They're the largest freshwater bodies on the planet. So... No, in in that regard. This is an experiment if they do get in or if they already are in terms of what their impact would be. And some argue that the Great Lakes are too cold for Asian carp to spawn in. Um, What are your thoughts about that? The Great Lakes proper are probably too cold and probably unproductive enough not to sustain a large population of Asian carp. That's, That's the going thought. But Where we worry most about where they could have a large effect is those areas that are near shore to the Great Lakes. These are the areas that people actually use. The only people that are using the middle of the lake are people like shipping and, and, you know, sailboats and things like that that are going on multiple-day cruises. But for the most part, most people occupy those shallower waters that are more productive and therefore have more food. And um, so places like Green Bay, Saginaw Bay, uh, even uh, Muskegon Lake, those are the places that we really worry about. In addition, those, those lakes are productive, but they're also connected to rivers. We have lots and lots and lots of rivers around the Great Lakes, and that's where Asian carp uh, uh, successfully spawn. So those areas like Muskegon Lake um, that are connected to Muskegon River and all those flood, uh, those flooded uh, lakes that are along the Great Lakes. Those are, are, are really something to worry about. And how likely do you think it is that Asian carp will get into the Great Lakes and then, you know, in turn get into these smaller lakes? And, and what kind of damage do you think they would do if they did get in? Um, in terms of the likelihood, uh, it's, it's tough. It's really tough to say. It's really tough to say. Um, I, I wouldn't want to place a bet on that if I was in Vegas, basically. Um, but uh, the types of things that 
they could do is is really w- what we worry about is they're filter feeders and they filter feed from things all the way as small as pine pollen all the way up to small crustaceans called zooplankton and those larger the the crustaceans are the ones that we really worry about and that's because they provide food for all the juvenile fishes in the great lakes so if these fishes are able to filter feed all those zooplankton out or a large proportion of them then basically they short circuit the food web and that doesn't spell a lot of good fishing from from then on. In what invasive um, species has damaged the Great Lakes so far? There's lots. There's lots. Um, The sea lamprey is probably the most recognizable. Um, It basically, in large part, collapsed the lake trout fishery in the Great Lakes and also harmed a lot of other species. Um, The alewife is one that people don't necessarily think of, but back in the 60s and 70s, this species was introduced via canals um, from the East Coast, and because there was no lake trout to prey on them, they became extraordinarily abundant and started dying and washing up on beaches in the millions. And that's why we now have Pacific salmon in the Great Lakes, which people really like to fish for, is to control those alewife. So those are two. The round goby is another one that uh, people may be familiar with. We're not sure of its impacts, but we know that it's highly abundant. Uh, we do know that it does eat eggs, uh, various game fishes, including lake trout and bass, things like that. And the zebra mussel is another pretty common one. Anyone that's looked at a pier or a rock or a car in the water or a shopping cart or any hard surface in the Great Lakes has seen these, and these have have a mixed impact on the Great Lakes. They clear clear the water up substantially, um, but they also have a large economic impact by clogging intake pipes and things like that. Well, in the studio is Brian Roth. He is a professor of fisheries and wildlife here at Michigan State University. He is here to talk about the threat of Asian carp to the Great Lakes since more Asian carp DNA has been discovered near Lake Michigan. Brian Roth, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. This summer unleashed an unceasing flood of cinematic versions of comic books. While most probably met this year's fourth superhero origin story with lackluster excitement, I met Captain America, the first Avenger, with the giddiness of a child on Christmas morning. The Captain, or Cap, as I like to call him because we are on a nickname basis is on my A-list of comic heroes, while, for most people, he's B-list at best. Captain America is not a fallen god nor a freak scientific accident gone wrong, but a calculated experiment gone right. We meet Marvel's first Avenger in the early days of World War II. Brawny actor Chris Evans is digitally transformed into Steve Rogers, a 90-some-pound weakling whose continual attempts to enlist in the U.S. Armed Forces are denied. On one attempt, Rogers is overheard vowing to keep applying by Dr. Erskine, a scientist played by Stanley Tucci. Erskine thinks Steve makes up for his lackluster physique with heart, making him perfect to become the first biochemically advanced super soldier. Only in the innocent times of the 1940s, in a comic book, does an experiment to create a perfect supreme soldier seem like a great idea. But in this case, it really is. Shut it down! After a brief but intense transformation in a little pod, Steve emerges with the body of a Greek god. In place of drawn-out training montages, the captain discovers his newfound abilities as the movie progresses. There is no out-of-body experience at his newfound muscles, no Doctor Who... TARDIS, it's bigger on the inside spiel. Although we skip over training montages, we are confronted with a montage of Cap being used as a propaganda tool to help sell war bonds, a job he eventually becomes dissatisfied with. At this point in any other superhero movie, the hero would examine their role in the world, question their power, will, and responsibility through a drawn-out speech. But here, there is a strategic decision made not to. Because Captain America shuts up and takes action. 
The captain takes on Hydra, the Nazi science division, which is led by the demonic Johann Schmidt, played with a crazed iciness by Hugo Weaving. Schmidt is a breakaway Nazi who stole Dr. Erskine's serum. The serum and that uh, supernatural glowy thing that appears in all the Avengers movies transformed his head into a red skull, which of course elevates his evilness beyond that of the typical Nazi. No, Captain America will not become the next classic. There's a little too much cheese and optimism for it to fall in the same category as Citizen Kane. In fact, a little too much cheese for me. I did cringe at the kiss between the captain and his leading lady, which of course took place as they were driving toward the edge of a cliff so that the captain could jump onto a flying plane. But the movie does give audiences something valuable. It allows them to indulge in the patriotic nostalgia of America's glorified past with a hero that is honest, steadfast, and pure. This is clear during the movie's epic fight scene. Planes, glass, and fire everywhere, punches, guns, and untimely high-tech lasers. It's looking dark for the captain. Red Skull standing over him as he picks himself back up. You don't give up, do you, snaps Red Skull. Nope, says Captain America. As an audience member, you are held in a brief moment of confusion. Really? That's it? Where's the epic exchange of ideologies between villain and hero? Where is the speech on principles, truth, and justice? And then you realize that simple, nope, was it. This is the response we should expect from Cap. There is no need for him to talk about his principles, because he lives his principles. Which is why, as an audience member, there is never any suspenseful doubt. With Iron Man and Thor, there remains this lurking cinematic concern. Will they save the Earth? Will they survive? But in watching Captain America, you develop faith. There is no need for bravado or hype. Captain America, the first Avenger, preserves the essence of Captain America, the character, which is why Cap is on my A-list of heroes and why this film manages to succeed. In a time where America has become such a complex and troubled country, where its very essence is in flux, it's nice to indulge in the innocence of yesteryear, because sometimes that's just the movie you need. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emmanuel Berry. tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And again, that was a movie review by Impact Exposure contributor and engineer over there in the other room, Emmanuel Berry. But the Ann Arbor-based bookstore Borders went into liquidation last week, closing the remaining 400 bookstores across the nation. To talk about the future of bookstores is Ray Walsh. He's the owner of East Lansing Independent Bookstore, The Curious Bookshop. Welcome to the show, Ray. Hi, nice to talk to you. So Curious Bookshop has been around for over four decades in East Lansing. Talk about how it started and how it has evolved over the years. Well, I started selling books when I was a student at Michigan State in 1969. That's B.C., before computers. <laughs> okay. Uh, I uh, paid my way to college, graduated in 1971, and said, gee, maybe I'll continue doing this for a while. I didn't really think that while was going to be 42 years. But it has been, and it's kind of fun. It's uh, it's been a challenge. It's been interesting, and it's uh, I have run into second generation and now third generation of uh, uh, customers who bring their grandkids in. Says, "Oh, we were students," and so it's kind of it's kind of fun to see that happen nowadays. How have independent bookstores done in recent years, um, your store included, with consideration with with e-books and online stores like Amazon and eBay? Well, I'm primarily a used bookshop. I'm not a new bookshop, so it's a little different breed of cat, so to speak. Uh, the books that we sell are mostly, uh, oh, once-loved type of things. Sometimes they're not uh, really uh, uh, in pristine condition, but they vary from... Uh, um, it, it, you know, brand new like to uh, you know, just pretty good shape. Uh, a variety of different things. We specialize in uh, uh, Michigan history and science fiction. We've got lots of kids' books. Uh, but the, the market's changed a bit uh, since I started uh, because of the Internet. 
it used to be uh, a lot more fun to sell books because there wasn't that much competition, uh, because um, it was more of a challenge for collectors to find books. Now, because of the Internet, almost anybody that has money can track down anything that they want and take a little bit of the fun out of it. It's caused some collectors to sell their collections because it's not a challenge anymore. And how many independent bookstores are there in the Lansing area? And, or I guess how many are there now and how many have popped up and, and died over the past 40 years or so? Well, in new bookshops, the biggest ones are Schuler's. And they have two in, uh, one in Okemos and one in the Lansing area. Uh, there's Everybody Reads on Michigan Avenue. Uh, there are other independent shops out in Mason and Williamston, but there are not uh, very many large independent bookshops. Uh, I'm talking about new bookshops. There, uh, in East Lansing, uh, we have, I own the Curious Bookshop and also the Archives Bookshop. Uh, but they are both used bookshops. We primarily sell that. We have some new books, uh, Michigan history, some mysteries, some science fiction or pulp-related items. But we're not uh, a new bookshop by any way, shape, or form. So what do you think about the Borders liquidation? What do you think that says about large bookstores, and, and what does that mean for independent bookstores like Curious Books? Well, I'm, uh, I've known Tom and Louis Borders, actually, uh, since the early 70s, even though they're not involved with running the company anymore, they wisely sold out to Kmart and became uh, millionaires more or less overnight. Um, the, um, I think the changes will affect a lot of uh, independent bookstores that are, and a lot of individuals that are used to going to stores like Borders. It wouldn't surprise me if some of the other bookshops, like Books a Million or Barnes & Noble, uh, would uh, buy some of the locations and operate new bookshops there. And for that matter, it wouldn't surprise me if Shirley would buy a location or two. So it's too bad that, uh, uh, the, uh, that they can't continue. Uh, it certainly will affect the business because it gives people less of a choice uh, uh, to, of a place to buy books. Uh, and I, in some cases, at least in Michigan, that may cause more people to buy books uh, online and to uh, get the electronic book versions of them. And, and what do you think has made Curious Bookshop stay around for, for the over four decades that it's been around for? Well, we've been fortunate to have a good clientele. Uh, I think they, they, they trust our knowledge and our prices of things. We have a wide variety of books. At Curious Books in East Lansing, we have three floors of books. And not just books. We have old magazines. We have comic books, anime material sports and movie items. So we're not your just average paperback bookshop. We have some rare books uh, and uh, a variety of different types of things. Uh, so I think that is part of it. Over at Archives, it's a, they have uh, 45,000 postcards in addition to 20,000 books. So it's a, a variety of different types of things. And uh, partially it's trying to guess what the customer wants. Uh, having a lot of mysteries and having a lot of uh, popular novels, uh, everything from Jack Kerouac to uh, uh, Henry Miller, uh, having Anne Rice and Stephen King uh, and Terry Pratchett books available. Uh, those types of things are not easily found in used bookshops at, you know, at interesting prices. So when, when was it that Barnes & Noble uh, moved into Grand River? Uh, that was about 10 years ago, it seems, and uh, I got questioned by the state news, and they said, are you worried about uh, uh, Barnes & Noble moving into your block? And I said, well, yes, kind of. You see, we have three floors, and they only have two. And so was, did that affect your business at all, once well, Barnes & Noble? We were, at the time, we were selling uh, bargain books and some of the remainder books, but Barnes & Noble has 20% of their ground floor devoted to that. And it's real tough to compete. So uh, we don't really sell that many remaindered books anymore, but we try to have a lot of good books and seasonal books that are available at interesting prices and prices that people can afford. How would you describe your customers that come to Curious Books, um, and how may they differ from those people that go to Barnes & Noble just a few doors down? Well, one of the things that we have is we have a much wider selection of material than Barnes & Noble. In other words, we have five thousand science fiction paperbacks. 
compared to uh, Barnes & Noble, which has maybe a 1,000 if you're lucky. So it's selection and it's a quality of material and variety. Uh, we get a variety of customers, everything from students to alumni, from professors and tourists. So it's a, a big mix of, uh, of customers from uh, not only uh, the East Lansing area, but from around the country and around the world. We had a professor in today from New York State who's looking for African-American studies books. And uh, uh, she says she comes here every year, twice a year when she's back in town, visiting a family. And so her first, her first stop after seeing the family is come to the bookshop. So do you, do you, does Curious Bookshop put on um, any events? Well, we're involved uh, with a couple of different events. Uh, we run the Michigan Antiquarian Book and Paper Show at the Lansing Center twice a year. Our next one's going to be September 25th. And we have about 70, 80 different exhibitors setting up there from around the country. Uh, and it's, we've been doing it for over 25 years. It's one of the largest shows in the Midwest. And we run a smaller show called Classicon. Uh, our next one is November 12th, which is a Saturday. Uh, and that is a uh, small show with about 35 uh, tables, and it emphasizes uh, comics and pulp, uh, pinups and paperbacks and uh, things of that nature. So it's a more esoteric, a much smaller show. So I, I'm currently doing an internship at, at Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor. So, you know, Borders is based in Ann Arbor, and, and when um, Borders went down, there was a big discussion in the newsroom where people were talking about um, when authors do signings. Usually they'll go to, I know in, at Schuler's um, here in the area that a lot of authors do readings there. Um, and so they, their question that they had was, what happens if if all of a sudden big chain bookstores, they all kind of die off, you know, where, where it would be a good venue for um, authors to, to promote their stuff. Well, they has a, there's a Carytown Book Fest coming up, and uh, that's where a number of different authors will be getting together uh, to, uh, that's in Ann Arbor, uh, to talk about books, to sign books, and to discuss, uh, in some cases, the condition of uh, uh, books and writing. I believe that's uh, September 11th, although I won't swear to it, uh, in Ann Arbor. Uh, we have information on that at our shop as well. Um, uh, we used to have signings at our shop at Archives uh, until we had to downsize because a, a coffee shop took over about half our space. We were involved with the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop for over 20 years until they moved to San Diego. So we were very familiar with uh, the uh, the problems of signing and where to uh, uh, have them uh, autograph material and talk about books. Uh, I suspect that if the shops close down, uh, they're still likely to have uh, those types of uh, gatherings at auditoriums or at the MSU Union or various dormitories even um, on campus. Uh, it's possible they may have things at the uh, local libraries as well. Uh, I was a uh, member of the Michigan Notable Book Committee, and they're responsible for getting uh, many authors to appear at local libraries. So that's uh, something that uh, happens throughout the summer and helps push Michigan books and Michigan authors. And finally, where do you see large chain bookstores and independent bookstores 10 years from now? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, while we've been in business for 40 years, Things are getting tougher and tighter. There's no two ways about it. The economy is a little bit more challenging, and the new technology is making people uh, a little bit less likely to read some of the uh, uh, older format books. Um, I, I'm hoping that they will still want to visit the popular local youth bookshop uh, in East Lansing, uh, but it's, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. I don't think anybody really foresaw uh, that uh, borders would be closing. We're certainly sad to see them go uh, because any time a source like that for books goes, it's going to have a ripple effect throughout the economy and throughout book lovers as well. Well, on the line is Ray Walsh. He is the owner of the Curious Bookshop in East Lansing. It has been around for over four decades. And he was on the phone to talk about the future of bookstores in America. Ray Walsh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's fun to be on the air. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more-
more variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and now time for the Michigan Storytelling Segment. This week's Michigan Storytelling Segment features Susan Messer. She is author of Grand River and Joy. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about this book. Um, Well, my book is about um, a man named Harry Levine um, at a particularly difficult time of his life. And the reason it's a difficult time of his life is because it's a difficult time for his city, which is Detroit in the 1960s. Um, He owns a home in the city. He owns a business in the city. He's raising children in the city. So his, um, we could say that his life is, the fate, his fate is um, intersecting with the fate of his city. And in fact, one of the things we say about my book is that it's a, the name is Grand River and Joy, which is an intersection of roads in Detroit, and that this is a novel about intersections um, between um, races, religions, neighborhoods, and generations. So you set this this novel at the time of of the riots in Detroit, right? Um, mm-hmm. Why did you, why did you want to set it during that specific time? Well, it's such a dramatic um, moment in Detroit's history, and it's it's actually the book begins in um, October of 1966. It, it spans a year, so um, the riots are in the middle of that year, and um, I'm I'm very interested in. Um, the time before something happens, uh, the, the people, you know, Harry Levine is aware that his um, that his uh, life is and his city are kind of teetering, but but he, he but he doesn't know. You know, nobody ever knows when it's going to happen or what's going to happen. Um, so that period before something dramatic occurs, it's, it's sort of like a time of innocence and and. Um, and um and and so i'm interested in that we know looking back what happened um that you know detroit went from you know in 1940s the arsenal of democracy in the 50s and 60s the automobile capital capital of the world and then within 10 or 20 years people were referring to it as the first us third world city so that kind of precipitous decline is uh, it's very it's dramatic and very interesting to me now you now live in the chicago area but did you grow up in detroit i did and so were you around during the riots um i was Mm -hmm. yes i I was in college then but um yes i i was so you didn't necessarily see them firsthand then Mm, well you know on the television and in the newspapers the way um the way most people did, although people who lived in the neighborhood saw saw them firsthand. But um, but I certainly understood the impact. But you know, it's it's all these years later that I really wanted to understand um, to understand. And I just want to say one thing about that word riots is that um, in my book, every chapter has a one word title, except for the chapter when the you know quote unquote riots occur, and that chapter is called riot slash rebellion, because the more I looked into the subject, I did a lot of um, archival research and historical research, um, I began to understand that it was a much more complex, um, you know, that there were a whole range of people out on the streets during those days, and um, and and um, some might see what happened um, 
as um, you know, sort of uh, random thuggery, but some people might see it as having more political intentionality. And um, so, so I just wanted to open up that word riots a little bit. And I'm a little uncomfortable with that word. It's the word that people know, and it's the word most people use to describe that time. But I, I like to, I hope that my book will open that up a little bit for people. Well, without uh, further ado, would you be willing to read an excerpt? Oh, I'd love to. Um, um, I'll, I'll just say about this excerpt, um, Harry is married to a woman named Ruth, and um, and the section I'm going to read is about Ruth, um, and um, she's been asked to lead a meeting for a, a women's group that... Um, that, that she belongs to. And the reason I'm choosing this section is because it crystallizes a lot of the issues that are and problems that are raised in my book. Um, I'm going to just, to set it up, I'll read one short paragraph and then skip over a couple pages to, um, to the main reading. Um, so here we go. The subject of her meeting was white flight, which always made her think of a flock of birds wings beating against each other in beautiful, frantic, and chaotic patterns as each white creature attempted to clear a space for itself among the many others, all rising at the same time, or trying to. In the past, men had made the decisions about when to take flight, but this was the 60s, and the Detroit Council of Jewish Women wanted a voice. So that's um, sort of the setup for the scene, um, and now here she's on the way to the meeting. Some of the council women had fabulous homes in Detroit's Sherwood Forest and Palmer Woods, but this month's meeting was in the little apartment where Alva Portnoy had moved after she learned that her husband was cheating with a skinny blonde shiksa he'd met at the Stone Burlesque on Woodward near Grand Circus Park. The apartment was in a brick building in a complex of identical brick buildings on Schaefer. This had to be the place for Ruth's presentation, an apartment where you smelled the neighbor's cooking, where Alva slept on a fold-out couch in the living room while her two teenage daughters, one recently picked up for shoplifting, shared the tiny bedroom. The buildings all clustered in a compound of weaving, looping streets with painted signs pointing to number ranges, which all dead-ended at a high brick wall that ran along Eight Mile Road, a buffer against incursion from the Negroes who lived on the other side in the city's northernmost attempt to stash them somewhere. The six-foot-high wall even had a name, the Burwood Wall, and kids tried to climb it, as kids do. But it was no kid's game, that wall, built in the 40s so that whites and their mortgage lenders would view, view their real estate investments to itself as protected. Ruth had never once found Alva's place on the first try, and again today she found herself coming up against the Burwood Wall in one dead end after another that didn't include any of the numbers in Alva's address. So she backed out and continued her roaming search, watching the time, seeing that she would miss the 12.30 lunch, even be a little late for the 1 o'clock meeting start time. She reviewed her thoughts as she drove in the endless circles of identical buildings fronted by the same small patches of grass, the same miserable shrubs, the arrows with the painted number ranges. And she went over the phrasing, the ideas she wanted to be sure to include, like a tape loop she'd been over hundreds of times, how Detroiters had dealt with changing neighborhoods in the past, how the Jews had themselves been barred from many neighborhoods, how whites and Negroes had clashed repeatedly in Detroit over housing and jobs, the bloody race riot of 1943, the neighborhood associations and restrictive covenants, the possibility of a new approach, and that Burwood Wall. All the women in the group had addressed the trend, had witnessed the trends, not only witnessed but lived them, the for sale signs, the worries over their children and the changing schools, new owners in the neighborhood businesses, their own fathers and husbands deciding whether to stay or go, seeing institutions, the shuls, the Jewish center, struggle with the hard choice about when and where to lay the cornerstone for the new building. 
No one wanted to be the last to go, but it was also hard to be the first. This meeting was a way of reviewing the past and thinking about the future. Let the women educate themselves and take a stand. Stay or go, it doesn't matter, she would say. The important part is to give other humans a chance to be human. What a stupid argument. Face it. It mattered. Property values mattered. Safety mattered. Even if you were the most progressive, tolerant, enlightened person in the world, you still wanted to get a good price for your house. And that for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Susan Messer, and she is the author of Grand River and Joy. Susan, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Broadcasting from the campus.